Amen. All right, choirs, you come down. Thank you for that song. And the choir was uh, conducted this morning by Melissa Neisel. So we're very grateful for her serving in that capacity for us. And we get our Bibles out, open to Nehemiah chapter 5. You'll find that on page 552 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Nehemiah 5, you just open it, the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms. Back up, go past Job. If you get to Ezra, you went too far. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're in a series through the book of Nehemiah that we're calling Sea of Faces. Uh, The reason we call this series uh, Sea of Faces is because I wanted us to focus on the aspect of the book of Nehemiah that it represents God's uh, propensity to use people who are just common, ordinary people who for any uh, for most reason would just believe that they're just another face in a crowd just going through life and, uh, but their heart is open and available to God they're faithful to Him and God snatches them up out of a sea of faces and uses them to do extraordinary things and so this morning we're going to spend our time in uh, the first part of Nehemiah chapter 5 and we'll talk about what if what you think is not what is What if you would say this morning that you are a Christian, that you're a follower of God, that you are sitting here, maybe a member of this church, and you feel totally confident in those things? And uh, maybe, maybe they're true, maybe they're not, I don't know, but what if what you think is is not what is? What if you're ideas about God and His purposes in this world and for your life and the way He operates uh, are not the way that you think. You know, I've been talking to you a little bit about through this series about how amazing it is that so many of us profess to believe this same book and the tenets and principles contained within it We say we follow the same God, that Jesus, the Son of God, is our Savior, and that we're His, redeemed by Him, and and yet so few people live a life of any real significance. And how do you align that with the things that we read in Scripture? Whenever I think about this, I begin to think about how easy it is for people to say that well, yes, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. But have we really stopped and asked ourselves, well, well, then where is he leading us? I mean, if you would say this morning, I'm a follower of Christ, then you do realize that what the implication of that statement is. If you profess to be a follower of Christ, then that means you're following him, which would then mean that he's leading you, which would then mean that you're going somewhere, that you are on a journey and you are following Christ, and so... Therefore, you would know and understand something. I mean, how would you follow someone if you didn't know much about them, if you didn't know what their ways were, their tendencies are, what their nature is, what their character is? Let me explain a little further. Clearly, God is up to something in history. I mean, Ray Charles can see that this morning. He's up to something in history. 
God's not sitting idle. This isn't some, we're, we're not in some uh, intertestamental 400 years of silence. It's things are not at a standstill in the kingdom. That's crystal clear. We see, you can't even turn the news on without seeing the prophecy of Scripture just being poured out right before our very eyes in the world events. God is up to something in history, and He's certainly up to something in this immediate history right here and now. And so, as a follower, is following Jesus more than just maybe a component of our lives? Isn't it more than just showing up for church, singing a few songs, listening to a sermon, and then getting right back to the rat race, going right back to the things that we normally do as if there's just this little quadrant of our life that revolves around this belief structure that we have, but it really doesn't bleed out into every other area of our life. Does that really make sense to you? Does that sound biblical to you this morning? Our culture has become so proficient at trying to squeeze all the things that we want out of Christianity. At trying to mold Christianity into what we want it to be or what we think it should be. And so we, you can hear it in our, in our, our hopes and our dreams and our wants and our desires. You can hear it in the way that so many people pray, God, help me, help me get out of debt. God, help me, help me fix my marriage. God, help me raise better children. God, God, me, me, me. But here's my question, what does God want? What's God's agenda? Let's forget your agenda. What's God's agenda? What is the agenda of the God that we profess to follow? Well, I can tell you some things about the God of the Bible. He's a God that's, that's into people. That he's into his glory and he's into people. He's into his glory through people. That that's his plan. That's his motivation. That's his agenda. And he's looking for people who are available to him. To follow him. To go where he's going. To, to be available to accomplish his mission. To make his passion their passion. To reform their lives around the things that, that he prioritizes. To seek his vision for their life and not their own. You know, I, I said a couple weeks ago that I believe there's going to be a lot of disappointment. It's going to be a lot of disappointment at the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be a lot of bewilderment in that moment. There's going to be even more bewilderment at the great white throne judgment where lost people are going to be astonished at the fact that they're lost. There's going to be multitudes and multitudes of people who think they're Christians, but it'll take their last breath, and it won't be what they thought it was going to be. I mean, the Bible, if there's anything the Bible says a thousand times over, it's that there's going to be so many people in that day screaming, Lord, Lord, 
And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You are a worker of iniquity. And do you know what that iniquity was? I mean, it's a, it's a lot of things. And it's a lot of different things around the world. But I can tell you, in the United States of America, that iniquity is going to be primarily, you lived for yourself. You didn't live for me. You lived for you. And that's not who I am. That's not my agenda. That's not what I'm about. So many people will even stand before the judgment seat of Christ. They're saved people before God, empty-handed and bewildered. Because essentially what they did was they invested their life in what they disguised as following him. But essentially all they did was follow themselves. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever desires to lose his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul what would he give God has a different economy than we have God's ways as I've been saying over and over are not our ways he he operates in a different realm in a different plane it's different if it makes sense to your human nature then it's probably not of God because that's not what he does that's not how he works our natural tendency is to operate in the flesh and operating in the flesh will deafen your ears it will make you deaf mute and blind to the things of God the mission of God is a spiritual mission and it must be discerned by the Spirit, which means it cannot be discerned by anyone who is not a true believer because they don't possess the Spirit. And that even those who are true believers and possess the Spirit can ignore the voice. Because maybe you think that the voice is one thing, and so you don't think that's God. In a very simple, practical, human way to explain this is that if you're in a crowd of people and, and you're looking for a lost little girl... And as you're walking through the crowd looking for this little girl that's lost and you hear a, a little boy's voice, you're not going to even pay any attention to that because you're looking for a little girl. But what if the whole time you're searching for this little girl, you're actually wrong, that it's a little boy that's lost and you're ignoring the voice of the one that you're searching for because you don't know who you're searching for. In the same way, if you think God is one thing, and yet God's utterly something else, and then you wonder, well, why am I not hearing from God? Because you, you don't know who God is. You're looking for the wrong thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, again, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So if God is speaking to us through the Holy Spirit, if this morning the communication between Almighty God who reigns supremely over the universe and little bitty you and me, if that's going to occur, it's going to occur through the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit speaks in spiritual words. And he communicates to people who have ears to hear, who have hearts to receive, who are available to accomplish his mission and his priorities and the things that he is devoting himself to. So let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we thank you for your perfect, inerrant word. We receive it as a gift for us. We pray that you'll instruct us supernaturally through Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning, Lord. Father God, we pray that you give us ears to hear that your spirit, that he might move in this time, that he would take your word and plant it in our lives and that we might not, we might not leave here thinking something is that's not. But Lord God, we would know your voice, we would hear your voice, and we would respond to it. Thank you for what you can do today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to ask a very prevalent question that I've asked oftentimes. I, I always want to pick on this question. Everyone asks this question. I've had 10,000 conversations in my life about this question. In some ways, it's a good question, a sensible question. It's a question that ought to be asked. But in other ways, it's just utterly ridiculous and just reveals our ignorance in asking it. But nonetheless, it's a question that we all have and have all thought about. And so we're going to use it this morning to launch us into our study. And the question is simply this. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the reason that we need to answer this question is because so much of what is wrong with the way so many people have skewed the God of the Bible into something he's not is summed up in this simple question. It's simple to ask. It's very difficult to fully answer. But we'll take a scratch at it this morning. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is our tendency... To be utterly astonished when somebody who seems to love God with all their heart, faithful to God, servant of God, they come down with cancer and we're, we're just astonished by that. And we just think, why them, God? But then some wretched, rotten, horrible person in our office, something bad happens to them and we think, well, that makes perfect sense. Oh, that's, that's totally plausible. Why do we think that? What, why, what, is, what is that born out of? Well, the first thing we need to do before we can even do anything else is we've got to spend just a few seconds on this issue of good people. Let's make sure that we're all clear on good people. Luke chapter 18 Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. And the man says in verse 18, he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Man, it seems like the question Jesus would want to answer faster than any other question. And Jesus responds and says, Why do you call me good? There is no one that's good but one, and that is God. Jesus said, what, what are you calling me good for? Now, if Jesus says that, we call everybody. We, we, we have this whole context in our mind of, well, these are good people and these are not good people. 
And Jesus says, well, why do you call us good? And Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. You see, this, this ruler, this rich young ruler, he comes and he thinks that Jesus is just some human prophet, some, some human religious man who has a lot of religious answers. And Jesus is saying, what are you calling me good for? God's the only one that's good. There's no human that's good. Now, part of the problem is, is that people do good things. All sorts of people do good things. And, and so that kind of confuses us a little bit because you can't, you can't say, well, well, because what we do is we say, well, someone's good because they do good things. But that doesn't mean anything. Why do people do good things? Well, for a lot of reasons, I guess. But just for the sake of simplicity, two main reasons. The two main reasons that people do good things, number one is because there's restrictions that prevent them from doing bad things. In other words... We do good things simply because that's what's available. But if, if it were available or permissible or we could get away with it, we would do the bad thing. All right, so you don't believe me, so let me convince you. So at what speed do you travel on the interstate? Why is the flow of traffic on the interstate while Officer Brandon's sitting there patrolling, trying to make the streets safe? And the flow of traffic on the interstate is never under 75 miles an hour. Yet the speed limit is 70. But because we have conditioned ourselves that it's permissible to, to drive, you know, five miles over the speed limit is essentially the same as the speed limit, then we do that. It just proves that we're going to do whatever we can get away with. If I could go 90, I would go 90. You know why I don't go 90? Officer Brandon. That's why you don't go 90. And then every time somebody passes me going 90, I think, where's a policeman? And I'm going 75, and I'm going, where's a policeman? <laughs> so we do good things because there's rules in place. There's penalties for doing wrong, so therefore, by default, we do good. The concern is not to do the right thing. You see, we would all say it's probably safer if we all just drive the speed limit. It would be safer if everyone together. But we're not interested in the goodness of the whole. We're interested in how fast can I get to where I'm going. Second reason why people do good things is for selfish motivations. You see, a lot of times people do good things simply because of what they can get out of doing the good thing. The best way to illustrate this is that, you know, if... if if Congress passed a... Well, that would be hilarious if they passed something. If Congress <laughs> hypothetically passed something that removed the tax deduction from charitable giving, instantaneously, most charities would cease to exist. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that People don't give to the charity necessarily because they're committed to the work of the charity. They give to charity because it's tax deductible. That there's, in other words, they do something good, but there's something in return. They do something good because people will think good of them or they'll receive something back. Or, and so there's a lot of things that go in the good category that are done really for wrong motivation. 
And so when we say, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's just flawed in and of itself because who's good? But even if we say, why do bad things happen to obedient people? Why do bad things happen to people who have a desire to follow God? Why do bad things happen to people who are trying to live their life for the glory of God? Maybe that's a better way to ask it. Same question. So when we get to Nehemiah chapter 5, we find this amazingly instructive picture in Scripture of a people who are on mission for God. They're building a wall around Jerusalem. They're, it's, it's this hodgepodge group of people. They're not trained in construction. They, they have little, you know, they, there's no real planning or organization that's went into this outside of this man, Nehemiah, that God has sort of plucked out of a sea of faces. That He is just a, a slave who works for the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, he's the cupbearer. He's like a lab rat for the king, and he, he just tastes his wine to make sure it's not poison, and if he doesn't die, then the king knows it's okay to drink it. But he's a Jew, but he's never been to Jerusalem. He's never been home. He's, he's 750, 800 miles away from home. 140 years earlier, the Babylonians went you know, plowing through the land of Judah, flattened Judah, flattened the temple in Jerusalem. And now, you know, here he is 140 years later. All he knows is the stories that he's heard from his relatives and people of a land he's never been to is in total disarray. It breaks his heart. God gives him a, a great burden. He begins to pray and seek the face of God, and God just raises him up to do this amazing thing and sends him with everything he needs to go back and rebuild the walls. And so they're on mission. They're, they're building the walls. And as you heard last week, that there's this pressure that comes whenever you're trying to do something for God. You better expect that there's going to be challenges. There's going to be trials. And so there's this external pressure from the, the enemies of the kingdom of God that we're, we're, in a, we're, we're trying to do what God wants done in a world that's ruled by wickedness and darkness. And those two things are going to collide. And so we should, shouldn't be surprised when there's when there's trouble. And so now we get to chapter 5. They're building away. And we've already dealt with Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem last week and all of their jeering and mocking as they're trying to unravel and, and sidetrack the work of God. And so we get to chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible says, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Now, this word outcry, it, it literally means in the Hebrew, screams of pain. The, the, the word outcry really doesn't give us in English a, uh, an idea of the, the, the desperation that is involved in what's going on. They're screaming out in pain and agony. Why? What's, what's going on? Well, in verse 2, we see that there's no food for they... they for there were those who said, We and our sons and our daughters are many, and therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. You see, what's happened is all these people, many of them were farmers. They dropped their plows and left their fields and come and are now working hand in hand, side by side. I mean, uh, amazingly, you saw last week that they were, they were literally sleeping with their weapons and in their work clothes and they were ready to accomplish. And so they're, they're working day in and day out and they don't, they're, not, they're, they're not plowing the fields. They're not 
harvesting crops. They're not doing anything like that. And so there's no food. And so there's a famine. And they're hungry. And they're, they're, their children are hungry. And verse 3 says, And then some said, We've mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. Verse 4 says, And there's also those who said, We borrowed money for the king's tax on our land and vineyard. Just because you're building the wall doesn't mean the king's taxes aren't due. And so when the taxes come due and they're building the wall and they don't have any grain to eat, much less to sell to make money, what are they going to do? How are they going to pay the taxes? You don't just tell the king of Persia, Well, sorry, we're building a wall. We don't have any money right now. It doesn't work like that. And so they had to mortgage everything that they owned to get enough money to pay the taxes so they could continue building the wall. And so now there's that problem. And even worse than that, look at verse 5. And now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. So not only are they starving, not only do they not have food, not only have they mortgaged all their land and their property and their vineyards so that they don't have anything so they could pay their taxes, but their children, many of their children have been taken into slavery. If you read closely in verse 5, you can, you can see that the indication there is that their children are slaves and it's not good. It's bad. And so that's why there's an outcry. That's why they're screaming in, in pain and agony. Because everything's falling apart. Everything that they, they, they seem to be in need of, is, it's just a disaster. And all these things that are going on, all these things that are befalling these people, who are these people? These are a group of people who are simply trying to obey God's will. I mean, it's not like they're out gallivanting around, involved in prodigal living. For goodness sake, they're building the wall. They've forsaken their land to do what they feel like God has called them to do. They're prioritizing God's priority over their own. They have done exactly what you would say, this is what a great spiritual person would do. And yet the wheels are falling off of their life. They've given everything to accomplish the will of God. And look at what's happening. In fact, you could make the case that the reason that all of these things are wrong in their life is because they've been devoted to building the wall. That the reason everything, there's a famine, the reason that they're starving, the reason that they've, they're in debt, the reason that their kids are in slavery is because they've been devoted to trying to do God's will. If it wasn't for the wall, they'd have food. They'd be able to pay their taxes, and their children wouldn't be slaves. Now, this ought to just explode some things that you think about God. See, many of you in this room, you think that your circumstances indicate whether or not you're in God's will. Secretly, you have built this theology of God around your humanistic reasoning that says, when I'm in the will of God, everything is going great. What are they doing wrong? What's wrong with these people? 
You think they miss God's will? You think God doesn't want that wall built? You think God doesn't want them to build the wall that way? You think, I mean, what do you think? How do you explain the fact that they're in absolute agony and misery while they're doing exactly what God called them to do? Just let that sit on you for a while. You see how warped our ideas about God are? That we actually think that we can discern the will of God based on our circumstances, based on what we're experiencing, based on the way we feel, based on we think we're doing good with God when God's doing good with us. That's not God's economy. That's never been God's economy, and that's never going to be God's economy because that's not who God is. Because you know what that theology does? That theology would negate Jesus ever being in the will of God. It would negate Paul ever being in the will of God. It would negate Peter ever being in the will of God. In fact, it would negate all the disciples ever accomplishing anything in the will of God because all they ever did was suffer. All they ever were was persecuted. But somehow we can't translate that to us. That's them. They're like, you know, they're the spiritual superheroes. We're just us. And so for us, we've flipped it around and we've made it different. For us, when we do God's will, everything smooths out and it's, it's just wonderful. Well, all I'm saying is what are you going to do with Nehemiah chapter 5? What are you going to do with 2 Corinthians chapter 11? What are you going to do with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What are you going to do with the entire ministry of the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Isaiah or Amos or Joel or pick one? But when it comes to me, modern American Christian, it's a whole new ballgame. We've got a whole new set of parameters that what happened in the Bible it's not, doesn't, affect, it doesn't translate to me. Really? You see, God's economy is not our economy. God's economy is more about people growing in the likeness of his son, Jesus. Accomplishing his purposes, his way, according to his agenda. And whatever he wants to do to accomplish that, however he desires to, to work in that, that's the way he's going to do it. And you know what the Bible teaches me? The Bible teaches me that the deepest valleys represent the greatest opportunities. Now, I don't like when my life teaches me that any more than you do. But the fact of the matter remains that if, if the purposes of God, if the will and nature and character of God are communicated spiritually through the Holy Spirit, if the way God confirms His will in our life is through his word his primary way of communication is his word if his word teaches that the deeper the valley the greater the opportunity then it would only make sense to me 
that that would be true in my life and it would be true in your life. Regardless of how we feel about that, regardless of whether we want to reckon that true or not, it is. Many of you know that one of the things I love to do is to hike in the mountains. I absolutely love it. And it's a strange thing because it's a love-hate relationship. It's, 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 uh, it pushes you to the extreme. It takes you to places you don't know you can go. And there's, there's so many times as you're on your way up a, a mountain trying to reach the peak and you're, you're, you're saying, why am I doing this? What is wrong with me? Like I could be sitting in my living room right now. I mean, are you crazy? And sweat's pouring off your head and you feel like every muscle in your body is about to just explode into a million pieces and you're just climbing and climbing and climbing. But then you get to the top and you notice something as you're getting close to the top. A lot of times, you, you don't, a mountain looks very different when you're on it than it does from a distance. And when you're on it, you, you really can't tell where you are with regards to the top because you can't see things. But here's what happens. You begin to notice that as you get closer to the top, the vegetation begins to thin out. And most of the time when you reach the peak, there's a bald is what we call it. No offense, fellas, but there's nothing there. And you can stand on that bald and you can look for miles and miles around. And it's sort of the, the amazing reward for all the hard work it, 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 it took to get there. But the reason that nothing grows on the top of a mountain is because the conditions aren't conducive to growing. There's no nutrients up there. There's, it's too harsh. The conditions aren't good. And so there's no trees. You can see everything because barely anything can grow there. But when you start down the other side of the mountain, as you're going down, the deeper you go down, the more lush the forest becomes. And when you get down the other side and you go into the valley that's adjacent to the mountain, the deeper into the valley you go, the more wonderful and lush it is. And oftentimes where we camp would be in the deepest part of the valley where the stream is, where, where everything is lush and beautiful and, and green because down there everything is conducive to growth. You don't grow on the mountaintops, you grow in the valleys. That's God's economy. That's how he designed you and he designed me. That we love the mountaintop because the view is so wonderful and because it makes us feel so good, but we don't grow there. We grow in the valley. We don't like the valley. Because we can't see in the valley. See, in the valley, I can't see what's around the next corner. I can't see what's right there. It's because it's too, it's too thick. It's too lush. But that's where we grow. And what's God's agenda for you? To grow you. Not to entertain you. So we wonder. We want to spend our lives on the mountaintop. And some of us exert all our energy to stay on the mountaintop. And we wonder why we're so malnourished. We wonder why spiritually we don't grow. We wonder why we're the same as we were five years ago, ten years ago. It's because you got to go in the valley. The valley's where the growth is. The economy of God, according to Scripture, Romans chapter 5, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says that we glory in tribulations. Why in the world would we glory in tribulation? Because it's in the valley, it's in the tribulation that produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is saying that there's a messenger of Satan that's there to buffet him, to harass him, to, to make him miserable, lest he be exalted above measure. 
Concerning this thing, he pleads with the Lord three times that it might depart from him. And then God responds in verse 9 and says, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The implication is there is no perfect strength, that there is no weakness. You've got to go in the valley to get perfect strength, that that's where it comes. That if you don't, if I take this away from you, God's saying, if I take this thorn away from you, Paul, you won't grow. The thorn is there to grow you, to enhance you. I know you don't like it, but I'm not here for what you like. I'm here for what's best for you. I operate on my own economy, not your economy. You see, even the Apostle Paul struggles with this because he's pleading that God would take it away from him. He's asking God to do what's not the best thing for him, and he doesn't even know that it's not the best thing for him. And then he responds and says, well, I glory in that, lest I be exalted above measure. C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian writers, wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and in it, he says, pain removes the veil It plants a flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Nothing quite like pain has the ability to cut through our psyche and make us both vulnerable and able to hear what we most often need to hear. We tune in in the valley. We we grow close to God in the valley. The economy of God is, you want to be like Jesus? Jesus then you're going to have to follow Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, take up your iPad, turn up your AC, and follow me. He didn't say, spend three hours a day on Facebook. He didn't say, make all the money you can make. Acquire all the possessions you can acquire. He said, take up your cross. Deny yourself. That's his economy. We know that verse. That's not new news. But isn't it crazy how it doesn't translate into our lives? The idea that that I'm suffering squarely and firmly in the center of God's will, where does that fit into your theology? I preached on Luke 22 when I was in Brazil because I was thinking about Nehemiah 5 the whole time. Luke 22 is where Jesus has this strange conversation with Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, I want you to understand the context of this statement. That if you look chronologically at what is going on in Peter's development, that the last sort of milestone, this defining moment in the life of Peter was the the little sequence with Jesus that's recorded in the book of John, the Gospel of John, where uh, Peter, Jesus asked Peter, "Well, well, who do men say that I am? And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And there's this defining moment when the light bulb comes on and Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. It's like this high point mark in Peter's life. It's like Jesus realizes, Peter, you finally got it. Peter, you're there. Peter, now you understand. 
And the next thing that happens, he says, by the way, I mean, there's a few little things that happen in between, but between Jesus and Peter, the next conversation is, by the way, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. So now I just realize that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. I got this thing like I've made it. So surely, Jesus, you're going to tell Satan, well, get lost, Satan. You ain't touching my man. That's my boy. Jesus said, but I prayed for you. Peter's thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. what do you mean you prayed for me? You, you prayed for me that, that so that Satan couldn't touch me? He couldn't sift me as weak, that that wouldn't happen? No, no. That your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus says to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And you know what? I'm going to let him. You know why? Because you need it. Because you're ready for that. You know why? Because you just realized that I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So you know what's next for you? Sifting. Welcome to my economy. Now I want you to think about this for a second. How many people, honestly in your heart, how many of you, when sifting comes into your life, your first thought is, why is God punishing me? And yet the Bible teaches the contrary. Now understand, there are... There are Two things happening in your life at one time. God's, if you're saved, God is working through the Holy Spirit in your life all the time through a process called sanctification. But then you're also living your life bouncing between the Spirit and the flesh. And so if you do stupid things in the Spirit, I mean in the flesh, then you're going to have to suffer the consequences for those things. So the illustration I always use in starting point is that if you put your thumb on a table, take a hammer and smash your thumb, it's going to hurt every time. It's never going to not hurt because that's sort of the principle of life. If you do stupid things, it's going to hurt. If you disobey God, it's going to hurt. So that's going on as you're waging this contrary nature back and forth between the spirit and the flesh. But at the same time, God's working. And so don't confuse the two. Don't think that when God's working to sanctify you, that that has something to do with what you're doing over here. It doesn't. You need to realize that there's more than one thing happening in your life at one time. That it's far, I mean, you're sitting here listening to me talk right now going, that's complicated. But yet at the same time, you've got billions of cells and hundreds of organs all working in unison. And you're not even thinking about it and God's just handling it, right? So why does that amaze you? It's not hard for him. You just have to read the Bible and say, okay, show me, help me to see, God. I need to discern spiritually. What does this mean? It means that God sifts his children. He sifts his believers. But notice what he says. He says, but I prayed for you. I prayed for you. What did I pray? That your faith would not fail. It means that your faith will not fail because I prayed for you. And what's it going to do? And when, not if, and when you return to me, 
Strengthen your brethren. Why would he say strengthen your brethren? Because he's been strengthened. That's, that sifting strengthens Peter to the capacity now that he can strengthen others. That apart from sifting, Jesus didn't say to Peter after he said, I know who you are, Lord. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He didn't say, well, good, go strengthen your brethren. He said, first you're going to be sifted, then strengthen your brethren. You see, maybe when you're suffering, God's sifting you. Maybe when you're suffering, God's strengthening you so you can strengthen others. And just a sidebar on Hebrews 7.25, just for those of you that aren't keenly and astutely tuned into what's going on around you. I wasn't even in the office this week until Thursday. I just got back from Brazil. Thursday morning's the first time I've been in the office. When I walked in the sanctuary this morning, that's the first time I've laid eyes on Craig in two weeks. I haven't seen him in two weeks. Had no contact with him whatsoever. I've been chewing on Hebrews 7.25 for I don't know how long. All Craig knows is that the service today is going to be on Nehemiah chapter 5. And yet, the two songs that we sing, look at Hebrews 7.25. Put that back up, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also what? Able, mighty to save. You see that? That song right there. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through God. Why? Since he lives. Hello? You think that's just an accident? Do you think that the choir just accidentally said, even now God is working? Even in what you're facing, God is working? He's speaking. He wants you to hear him. He wants you to see that he's in the details. And so he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to him through God since he always lives to make intercession. But don't, don't, don't be afraid, Christian, in your suffering, in your trials, in your, when, you're, when you're facing problems and issues and struggles. The Bible says in Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. All of them. So embrace the valley for what it is. And pray God, use me to strengthen others when I'm strengthened through the sifting process. You see, if pain in our lives is viewed merely as something to avoid at all costs, which I would subscribe that in many, many people's lives today it is, all you're going to do is live lives marked by shallow faith and you're going to leave behind no eternal impact on this world. I don't see it in Scripture. I've read every single word of the Bible multiple times and there's not one example anywhere of one person that God used to do anything great who suffered zero. So what are we trying to do? It would appear from God's perspective that most of the church today has devoted themselves to making no impact. That our whole lives are sort of quarantined around, we don't want to make an impact, God. 
Because we don't want to suffer. We don't want, any, we don't want any kind of sacrifice. We don't want any hardship. We want ease. And we've got our own new economy that says, when we're in your will, everything's good. And we even justify it and say, well, it must be God's will because things are going good. Think about how stupid that is. Did Jesus is going, I'm, I'm, oh man, look at them. They're spitting on me. Look at them. They're beating me. Boy, it must be going good. He knew he was in God's will. And look at what was happening. And we base everything around how we feel. What are we enjoying? Is it good? Is it easy? Well, it must be God. You see, because God's economy is counter to our natural inclination. So quickly, why... Why are these people suffering? Why are these people building this wall? I hope this is driving you crazy right now. Because it should be. Like if this isn't bothering you, something's wrong with you. It should be just churning around inside of you. Like what is going on here? They're building the wall. God, here I am. I've left my family I've, I've, I've spent all sorts of money. I've flown halfway around the world. I mean, I'm giving everything to you, and then every, if the minute I get off the plane, it's opposition, opposition, opposition. And you think I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's not God's will for me to spread the gospel to unreached people groups. No, that every time I miss a plane... Every time someone on the team gets sick, every time there's a hardship, every time we get lost, every time we, we, we get blockaded out of something, every time, that's how I know that I'm on the right path. Because it's hard. So what does God, how does he use all this suffering, the famine, the slavery, the indebtedness. What is he doing? Wouldn't it just seem like, doesn't it just seem that in our mindset, what God wants to do is build a wall. That's what he wants to do. And he's the supreme sovereign God of the universe. So he needs to just, why don't you just make every, all their problems go away so they can build the wall? Because that's the priority is to build the wall. That's where you're wrong. That's not God's priority. I already told you that. His priority is never a project, it's always a people. People is what God is into. So look at what happens in verse 6. And I became very angry, Nehemiah said. And when I heard their outcry of these words, and after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and I said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our uh, ability, we have re uh, redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, you, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. And I said, what are you or what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Who is persecuting these people? Why are they in debt? Why do they have no food? Why are their kids in slavery? It's not Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. It's not external pressure. It's internal pressure. 
Look at what it says. It says right there in verse 7. Each of you is exacting usury. That means you're using your brethren. You're charging exorbitant interest on the loans that you've given them. You've indebted them. They're your brother. God sees this group of people building a wall. And they're accomplishing his purpose in building a wall. But he's not about the wall. He's about the people. And he looks at the people and he goes, but here's the thing. Some of the people that are in the people building the wall aren't doing the right thing. And so I'm going to use the pain to purify the people. I'm going to move them into the valley so that they grow into the people that I want them to be. Because as they're building, listen, you walk by Jerusalem, you look and you go, wow, look at those amazing people. Look at them hand in hand building the wall. Look at them working together, cooperating, loving each other. You can look at this church and you can go, what a great church. Look at how everybody loves each other and cares for each other, ministers to each other. Because on the outside, it looks so good. But what's really going on? Some of the people holding hands, laying brick, mixing mortar, some of them are extorting money from the other ones while they're doing the will of God. And God's like, that ain't going to fly. So we're going to have a little famine time, and we're going to have a little uh, uh, slavery time, and we're going to have a little indebtedness time because we're going to learn about God's economy. And so then they start screaming out in pain, and Nehemiah stops, and after serious thought, he realized, you know what's happened? We're not all on the same page here. We've got people amongst us that look like us, act like us. They do good things. They look righteous and moral on the outside. They look like they're fully vested in everything that's going on. But their motives are impure. And God's like, I'm not into impure motives. I want a pure people. So he brings it to purify them. See, he's causing this division so that they see that's not right. You can't do that. Now, see, if they wouldn't have had a, a slavery, if they wouldn't have had hunger, if they wouldn't have had indebtedness, they would have just kept building the wall, and no one would have ever known. They'd have got to the other side, and it would have been fine. But that's not how God works. See, some of you think you're just going to just fool God. You're just going to, like, slide through under the radar. You, you think that he's missing the secret sin in your life. You think that somehow because no one knows about it but you, you're going you're gonna to get by or you've convinced yourself that you're not hurting anybody else but yourself or you for whatever the reason. And you think that God's just going to be okay with it, but you're wrong. He's not going to be okay with it. He never has been and he never will be. And he's going to relentlessly work in your life to purify you and either you are going to yield to him or you are going to perish. One or the other. So what happens? Well, basically what's happened is we've fragmented the, the family of God right here in front of us. We've got people who are working 
and who, are, who need to pay bills. And, need, and then we got other people who got money who are loaning it to them at exorbitant rates and taking all their uh, the leases to their land and all their, and then taking their children and using them as slaves. So they're, see, the, 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 the thing is, is that they're building the wall, but they got their kids working on their land, harvesting their crops so that they have food to eat. And God says, no, we're not going to do that. And so you know what happens? That basically it's the same division this morning for every single one of us in this room. You could basically divide this family into two groups. Consumers and contributors. You see, you've got some that are contributing. They're just working. And they're giving everything to build the wall. And they're, they, they have proven their willingness to sacrifice because they've left their lands. They've even mortgaged and hocked everything they had to accomplish the purposes of God. They're contributing all they got. But then you've got the consumers. You've got people who are appearing to do good and righteous things. But really, they're just doing those things with an inward motivation. They're gaining from it. They're profiting from it. You see, they're the people that they come to church and only do the things they want to do. They're the people who sit in church week after week after week, but know nothing of sacrifice. That if I say to you this morning, how are you sacrificing? Where is the sacrifice in your life? If instantaneously you're not just ringing up things, that is very problematic. Because you're consuming. You're not contributing. That sacrifice is the currency of the economy of God. That that's how he operates. That he calls us to a place where we are outwardly focused. That we realize that everything we have is to flow through us and to be used for his purposes. It's not for us to hoard it in or to take it up. And so it's not for us to go, well, you know what? I'll do this if I like this, or I'll do this if you treat me nice, or I'll do this if it's convenient to me, or I'll do this if I feel like it, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want to do that, or I don't need to do that, or I don't whatever. You see? You know who the contributors are? They're the people that do all the jobs around here that no one wants to do. This church is built on the backbone of contributors. But it's also infiltrated by consumers who just breeze in, breeze out. Breeze in. Well, most of you will breeze out because I keep preaching like this. You just breeze out. Will we do the things that look righteous on the outside? They look selfless on the outside. They look spiritual on the outside. But behind them, it's really just about what I want to do. What I like to do. What I feel like I can... What happened to just... Bending your ear and discerning through the Spirit as God confirms in His Word the things He's calling us to do. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow Him. So God uses this pain to expose motives and to purify the people. And so then what happens? He's, verse 11, 
Nehemiah says, restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, a hundredth of their money, their grain, their wine, their oil that you've charged them. So they said, we will restore it and we will require nothing of them and we will do as you say. See what happens? So my prayer is that God will speak to some of you this morning. And you won't be mad at Pastor Tony or you won't storm out of here and say, well, you know, I'm just going to go find a church that just doesn't preach the things I don't want to hear. You could do that. Or you're going to listen to what God's saying. And you're going to say, yes, Lord, I hear you. And I will restore it. I'll put the past behind me. I'll turn over a new leaf, and from this day forward, things are going to be different. The section ends at the end of verse 13. The Bible says, and all the assembly said amen, and they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to the promise. You see, that's the economy of God. God's into people. God loves you this morning. He loves you. And what he wants for you is to be like Jesus. And he knows that you grow in valleys, not on mountaintops. And so if you feel like the foot of God is on the top of your head, just pushing you down, pushing you down, and you can't seem to fight your way up, it's not God hating you, it's God loving you. It's God's economy. That's how he works. That's how he operates. That really... The only way to respond to a text like this or really to all the Scripture is to say the only way to live in light of Scripture that makes any sense is sacrificially. That really it's the only way to live. That if your life's not a life of sacrifice, then you're missing The best way to live. It's not just the the right way. It's not just the wisest way. It's the best way. It's the most profitable way. It's the way, if if you say this morning, if you just say, I don't understand all this, but here's what I know. I want to live my life for the glory of God. I want to be everything that God wants me to be. I want to commit my life this morning, right now in this place. I don't forget everything that's happened in the past, but starting right now, from this day forward, I want everything that God wants for me, whatever that is. If you say that in your heart, that's the smartest thing you could say. But you got to understand that that's saying, I want to live a life of sacrifice. Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what he's called us to do. But you know what? Everyone around you is going to think you're crazy. It's not going to pay off here. But there won't be any regrets at the judgment seat of Christ. Sacrifice is the currency in the economy of God. Are you a consumer or a contributor? Are you following God this morning? I hope so. If you are, where is he leading you? Because if there's no sacrifice... I'm pretty sure you're not following God. 
Let's stand by our heads.